Jamie, thanks. I love to listen to that man play the piano. Don't you guys? I'm, we're going to miss you. We're going to miss you, friend. We're going to miss you. And Greg, where'd you go? Oh, there you go. Okay. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Um, my routine, uh, I know this is going to be fascinating for you guys to know this, but uh, my routine and sermon preparation. How many of you are already excited? Okay. At least one or two people. Very excited. <laughs> my routine and sermon preparation is I read and I study and I think and uh, early in the week asking God to teach me the text and show it to me. And, and then on Friday and Saturday I write. And I... I uh, I go to bed on Thursday night always asking God for the first word. You know, you, when, you, when you have a blank page staring at you, you need that first word. And Lord, how am I going to introduce the sermon? How do you want me to introduce the sermon? And I, I usually wake up Friday morning and I know. Because uh, I've prayed about it and thought about it a lot. And it's in my head. It's, before I wake up, it's in my head. And I wake up and there it is. It's in my head. And I go into my desk and boom, boom, start, type, start typing, you know. And, uh, but it wasn't like that this Friday. I, I couldn't... I, I, I couldn't find the introduction. And I kept asking the Lord, and I was, you know, looking at resources and stuff, and I couldn't find the introduction. And I thought, well, this is a waste of time. So I got up out from behind my desk, and I walked into the bedroom. And we have a large chair in there where Karen sits and reads. <laughs> I love this about her. <laughs> I walk in there, and tears are rolling down her cheek. And I know what it's about. And uh, she's holding this book. It's A.W. Pink, The Attributes of God. She looks at me and she says, I love this book. I love this book. And she showed me something she wrote in the margin of that book back in 1996. Let's see if I can find it. Here it is. She wrote... All that comes to me comes through my Father's hands. She was reading that again. And uh, something you need to know is, is that Karen and I, was, our, our relationship began around a study of the attributes of God. And the Lord really changed both of us through that study. And it's informed the balance of our lives since that time. And I, and I have to say to you, some of you know this, when you study who God is, it's a little bit intoxicating. It's a little bit intoxicating. It's a whole lot addicting. If you really get some sense of how beautiful and captivating He is, you can't stop looking at Him. You can't stop pursuing Him. You can't stop obeying Him. He's just simply that compelling and that gorgeous. So as I, as I go in there, Karen's reading this paragraph. Pink writes, Here is the sure resting place for the believer. Our lives are neither the product of blind fate nor the result of capricious chance, but every detail of them was ordained from all eternity and is now ordered by the living and reigning God. Not a hair on our heads can be touched without His permission. Brothers and sisters, if you really believe that, <laughs> you can't live you know, small Christianity anymore. If you really catch a glimpse of the living God, El Shaddai, Jehovah Jireh, you won't be able to live your Christianity small anymore. You'll be free 
to live that uncareful life and you'll be free to count it all joy when the doctor says you have cancer. This is one reason I love my wife. You know, she, uh, she was kind of organizing the women's retreat this year and, and uh, the, the emphasis was uh, the attributes of God and she got a couple of questions about that. Well, how is that practical? How, does, how do I work that into my daily life? What does that mean when I get up in the morning? How is this really, you know, applicable to my problems and, and the way I have to live my life? You know, Karen knows how to answer questions like that because God's attributes come in real handy on days like June 26, 2008. And that was the day that the doctor told us that Karen had cancer. And man, you need God. And the doctor tells you you have cancer. It comes in real handy to know that He is sovereign and that He is supreme. This is not bad luck. God is doing something in my life. It, it comes in handy to know that, that this, is, uh, this has come through the Father's hand and, and He means it for good in some, some unknown way to us. He means it for good. And it really helps to know that God is good. God is faithful. God is attentive. God is loving. God uh, is lavishing goodness upon us even when the doctor says, you have cancer. You know, Karen doesn't just teach about a huge God. She loves one and knows one and she walks like she does. You know, when I hit a text like, count it all joy when you encounter various trials, <coughs> my beautiful wife is my introduction. And I was sitting there wasting all my time, you know, sitting behind my desk. Man, my wife is my introduction. I've watched her live it for the last eight or ten months. Beloved, knowing who God is is absolutely essential for you to navigate your life. It's, it's absolutely essential for you in navigating your life. Seeing Him, knowing Him, being in awe of Him, being in a real relationship with Him, that is the Christian's foundation. When the marriage goes wrong, the job goes wrong, your health goes wrong, your money's gone wrong, God is our foundation. There's that beautiful word in the Old Testament, and the psalmist really just go nuts on this. This word selah. Does anybody know what the Hebrew word selah means? I may have mispronounced it. Selah, selah. The one I'm talking about, Monsia, is the rock. And the psalmist really get excited about this concept. You know, they're not standing on religion or ceremony or ritual or orthodoxy. They're standing on their stronghold, their strong tower, their refuge, their rock. David exclaimed, Who is a rock except our God? David understood about Jehovah Jireh being our rock. That was Psalm 18.31. In Psalm 71, the psalmist calls God a rock of habitation. I love that. He's a rock of habitation. If you go look at the message, it paraphrases it like this. You're my vast granite fortress. Isn't that beautiful? God, you're my vast granite fortress. And when the doctor says you have cancer, God is my vast granite fortress. And my wife doesn't weep because she has cancer. She weeps because she has a vast 
granite fortress. And it's real to her. It's real to her. What good are the attributes of God? They're indispensable. They're indispensable for the real Christian. They're indispensable. He is our rock, our vast granite fortress. So in the dread of cancer, the nausea and exhaustion of chemo, the burns and fatigue of radiation, God is her sailor. God is her rock. My wife is my introduction. May I say that God has been transparently present with us during this time. Uh, it is impossible to quantify it or to explain it, but He has been conspicuous with us. Beloved, God never doesn't come to His children in trial. He never doesn't come to His children. I know that many of you could give testimony Stirring testimony to that fact. God is our habitation in the trial. He uniquely comes to His children in the trial. He never doesn't come. We've been talking about the last couple of weeks, Psalm 1611. In Thy presence is fullness of joy. And this is why God can command us here in James chapter 1. To, to count it all joy in the trial. Why? Guess who's going to meet us in the trial? Guess. The one in whom is fullness of joy. He's going to meet us there. God always meets His people. He always meets His people in the trial. The trial is coming. It has come through our Father's hand. And He will meet us there. He is our vast Granite fortress. He is a faithful God. As John Piper says, and as I've said to you several times, God has not simply allowed Karen's cancer. God has designed it for her. And I know that that's, that's a big, big piece of meat for some of you to swallow. You just simply don't know God like this. You've not studied your Bible. You don't understand that God is absolutely, completely, supremely sovereign. And every detail of the whole cosmos but particularly in the life of His children. You know, when people say, God has allowed it, I know why they say it. And I don't want to be hypercritical, but as I said to you a year or so ago, I don't know if that kind of talk pleases God. Not after what He's told us about Himself in the Bible. Not after we've read the book of Job. I don't know if that kind of talk really pleases God for His people to talk like that. Friends, He has designed the trial and He means to come and meet you there and He means to change you there. That's what it's about. That's why you can say count it all joy because He's going to come meet you there and in His presence is fullness of joy. What an awesome thing. What an awesome thing. And He's going to bring us to James 1... Uh, chapter 1, verse 12. You guys heard uh, the text read. What does verse 12 say? That's where we're going to end up tonight. This whole uh, first 12 verses bring us there. Blessed is the man who pre perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised for those who love him. 
verses 2 to 11 are kind of a road map to verse 12. God's going to bring us to verse 12. He's going to bring us to verse 12. We will persevere under trial because He's the God He is. And He's going to meet us there and He's going to bring us through. And our faith will be found to be approved and we will receive the crown of life because He will bring us through the trial. He will bring us through. Verse 2 and 3. We talked about it last week and I just want to revisit verse verse 3 real quick. Just, just make a few comments that I don't feel like I covered it thoroughly last week. But what does verse 2 and 3 say? What is the trial? What is it? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. What is the trial? What is it? It's a test. It's a test of what? What does verse 3 say? A test of what? A test of your faith. Our trials reveal what we really believe. Not just what we say we believe, but what we really believe. Karen teaches that God is good and sovereign and loving and faithful. Guess what? When the doctor starts talking about cancer and chemo and radiation, she still believes it. And she still teaches it. You know, I love it when I see that look in her eye. <laughs> it's that look like, I love God so much I might explode. Any of you guys ever get that look? I can see it in her eyes. <laughs> You know, like Friday morning when I walked in, the tears were coming down. I thought, man, she's going she's gonna to blow up. She loves God so much. And she treasures Him so much. And she knows Him so well. She might just simply explode. Karen believes and lives what she teaches. Karen's faith has passed the test. That's what, that's what God's saying to us here. This is a test. Your trials are a test. So you'll know your faith is genuine. God already knows if it's false or if it's true. You need to know, is it false or is it true? You need to know. And the test will tell us if our faith is false or if it's true. You know, we talked last week about that Greek word consider here in verse 2 carries the meaning of having authority over or ruling over. And God is commanding, to, commanding us to let our joy rule over our trials. And one thing we talked about last week is one way we can do that is to be heavenly minded. We've been talking about this with the Heaven series that we just finished. To be heavenly minded. God says, my kids are always thinking forward. You know, the unbeliever... Just simply, all he can do is simply look at the trial. He's stuck in the middle of the trial. That's all he can see is the trial. He's fixated on the trial. God says, my kids don't live that. They look right past the trial. They look all the way into eternity. Let me ask you, Christian friend, is that true of you? When the trial comes, do you get fixated on the, the hard thing? Or are you still fixated on your God? Knowing that He's going to bring you through. Knowing that He's going to meet you there. Knowing that you're going to come out different. And you're going to know Him better. Because of the trial. John Piper called his own cancer a gift. And I love how the message paraphrases uh, James 
1 verse 2, it says, Consider it a sheer gift when tests and challenges come to you. Is that how you look at it? Let me ask you, Christian friend, are you thinking biblically? Are you bringing the Bible to your life and to the circumstances of your life? Are you thinking biblically? When the hard thing comes, are you thinking biblically? Are you? Do you see it as a gift? Do you see it as coming through your Father's hands? Friends, this is the way we're supposed to think. We talked about this last week, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. God says, my children are to think, this is how they're supposed to think about trials. These are momentary light afflictions. Right? Momentary light afflictions. And they are producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparisons. Guess what? God really means for you to live like that and to think like that. He expects you to do that. This is not just pretty theology. For me to stand up here and re repeat to you, God means for you to do it. He means for you to do that. That kind of mindset, that kind of biblical mindset, He means for you to bring it to your hard thing. He means for you to bring that kind of thinking to the hard place. God says, my kids don't fixate on what they can see. They fixate on me. They can't, the, the things they can't see. They fixate on me. They fixate on my promises. They fixate on heaven. They fixate on their inheritance. They fixate on the stewardship they have before me and the rewards I'm going to give to them. That's what my kids fixate on. I love it, man. <laughs> you got to love Christianity. It's like cheating. I mean... Really, it's like cheating for the child of God. It really is. It's an awesome, awesome thing. David said it perfectly. <laughs> Psalm 30, verse 5. Weeping may last for the night, but what? A shout of joy comes in the morning. Our morning <laughs> will be eternal. Our eternal morning is on its way. Our eternal morning is on its way. And I want to challenge you, Christian friend. I want, you, I want to challenge you to start thinking biblically. If you're not, I want to challenge you to start thinking biblically. Train your mind uh, to, to think like this. Yes, when the doctor says you have cancer, you have all the normal reactions that a human being has. And the fear and the dread and the anxiety. Your flesh wants to whine, and it wants to worry. But what I'm going to challenge you to do is when the bad news comes, yes, you're going to feel all of that in your flesh, but I'm going to challenge you to do an abnormal thing. Count it all joy. Hey man, God doesn't say this stuff just because He likes to hear Himself speak. He didn't have this written down and preserved for us. He expects you to do it. He expects you to think like this. He expects for your joy to rule over, to rule over your hardship. So the abnormal reaction will be, hey, I've been counted worthy. I was studying this week and man, it just hit me, you know. I turned around and looked at Karen and effectively said, you've been counted worthy. You've been counted worthy of a God encounter. <laughs> a God encounter that I don't, I don't know anything about. 
I can't know what it's like to have a life-threatening disease. I don't know anything about that. You've been counted worthy of a God encounter. God says in Romans chapter 8, He says, My kids don't walk according to the flesh. They don't succumb to the normal temptation to, to wallow in worry and anxiety. My children don't do that. My children walk in the what? Spirit. They don't walk in the flesh. They walk in the Spirit. They walk in the Spirit. And when the bad news comes, we need to let our abnormal reaction rule over our normal reaction. What is God doing in my life? Should be one of your first questions. How will God reveal Himself to me in this? What will He teach me in this? How does God mean to bless me in this? How does God mean to reward me in this, in this life and for all eternity? How will my response enhance my temporal life and my eternal life? This is the way we're supposed to be thinking, Christian friend. Oh, and guess what? How will God use my response to this trial to change the life and eternity of an unbeliever watching me? We've been talking a lot about this. Man, when the trial comes, the spotlight is on you. The spotlight is on you. And man, it's the best time. It's the best time to show the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. It's the best time to point unbelievers to Him. So guess what? We need, when the trial comes, we need to immediately think, hey, this is a God encounter. That's what this is. It's a God encounter. And I'm going to challenge you to start thinking like that. You're going to have to train your mind to do that. I know it doesn't come natural, but this is a God encounter. The trial is here. And guess what? If the trial's here, guess what? Guess who else is here? If the trial's here, guess who else is here? God. God's here. Friends, when the trial comes, you need to, <laughs> you need to dust yourself off and get ready because it's a God encounter. That's what it's all about. It's about the fact that He has come to you in this way. Blessed is the man who perseveres in the trial. Did you hear that? Blessed. Was that what does that word mean? Blessed. What does it mean? Happy. Let me ask you, Christian friend, are you reluctant to be happy? What does it say? Blessed is the man who perseveres in a trial. Are you reluctant to be blessed of God? Are you hesitant? to enter into deeper intimacy with Jesus Christ? That's the implication. Blessed are you. Are you hesitant and reluctant to be blessed <laughs> of God? Oh, how many times we... Uh, I've heard a preacher say this one time. I, I kind of liked it. You know, so many times we're, we're praying away the very thing God means to change us with. And I know there's mystery there. I know there's mystery there. The trial is here, but so is God. I love how David Polson, he was a cancer survivor, theologian, he says this, <laughs> we are 100% certain to suffer and we are 100% certain to meet Christ in that suffering. 100% certain to suffer and 100% certain to meet Jesus Christ right in the middle of it. 
So I exhort you, brothers and sisters, to, to think biblically about your trials. Man, God hasn't forgotten you or forsaken you. He's on His way to you. Don't let the unbeliever see you whining and worrying and moaning and groaning. I'm not saying we're not human, but I'm saying God's calling us to this high place, this really, really high and beautiful place. Look at verse 5 and 8, 5 through 8 here. He says, if you lack wisdom, what? What does he say? What does God say? If you lack wisdom, what? Ask. How many of you have been asking? Okay. God says ask. Hey, if you don't have wisdom to go through the trial, guess whose fault that is? It's not God's. It's yours. God says, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask. You. Now, I want to make this clear. You know, God doesn't give an accounting. He doesn't explain Himself to anyone. He never gives an account of Himself to anyone. But He will impart wisdom regarding the trial. You may recall, God never answered any of Job's questions. God just gave Job a jaw-dropping revelation of Himself. And that's what God's going to do in your trial as well. So what does the Bible say over and over again about wisdom? What is the beginning of wisdom? The fear of the Lord. Proverbs 9.10 says it beautifully. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Oh, we're back right where we started. The attributes of God. The knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. This is why my wife worships in cancer. She doesn't wring her hands. Because she has a knowledge of the Holy One. This is the kind of wisdom James is talking about. You know, God hasn't given us an accounting of, of why and all that He's doing. We don't have to have that accounting. We don't have to have that accounting. We don't need that accounting. Karen has a knowledge of the Holy One. We don't need an accounting. God answers every question. God is the answer to every question. When you can't find the answer to the question, God is the answer to the question. When the question's too big and mysterious and lofty to get to the, to the heart of it and, and find the answer, God, God is the answer. Let me ask you real quick. Have you ever surveyed the Bible regarding the benefits of fearing the Lord? You know, it talks, you know the beginning of wisdom is uh, in fearing the Lord. I did a quick... T- look at, listen to this. I'm going to give it to you real quick. The Bible says that those who fear the Lord, Psalm 25, they're friends of God. Psalm 33, they're cared for by God. Uh, Psalm 34, they are protected and delivered by God and they have no want. Psalm 103, they are recipients of God's love and compassion. Psalm 147, the Lord takes pleasure in them. Proverbs 14, uh, they drink of the life of God. Proverbs 19, uh, those who fear the Lord are satisfied. This is the kind of wisdom that James is talking about in verse 5. The fear of the Lord, the knowledge of the Holy One. This is the kind of wisdom that James is talking about God-given wisdom. You're not going to get this from a psychologist or a psychiatrist. You can't get this on a psychic hotline. It's not going to be in your horoscope. You can't get it from a philosophy professor at Harvard. It's God-given. And only God's children get this kind of wisdom. The kind of wisdom that, hey, 
However hard it is, God's enough. God is enough. God means for you to come to Him and ask Him for wisdom. This is a command. It is not a suggestion. Okay? Present active imperative. God says, ask me. Ask me. God is a giver. We've talked about this many, many times. He gives generously without reproach. I love that. God gives generously, open-handedly, liberally, big-heartedly, without reproach. What does that mean? You know how it is with your kids sometimes. They come to you and you say, well, I'm going to give you your allowance, but you don't deserve it. You're a little punk. <laughs> well, maybe you don't say that last part. But, you know, you know how it is. There's a reproach in it. Yeah, I'm going to do this, but there's a reproach. It's not like that with God. It's not like that with God and His children. There's no reproach. God says, God says, if you lack wisdom, you ask me, and I'm going to give it to you. Big-heartedly. I love that. Open-handedly. God is an omnipotent giver. We've talked about it many, many times. Beloved, if you don't have the wisdom to navigate the trials of life, ask God. You know what? This is sad to say, but it's true, and you probably can own this for yourself. Sometimes we do everything but We've called all our friends. We've been reading all the latest self-help books. We've done everything. We've been surfing the net. We've done everything but what? Ask God. God says, ask me. God says, ask me. Karen and I love to go to the sea here. And you look at verses 6 through 8. He talks about the doubting man. He's like a... He's like the sea driven, tossed uh, by the wind. You know, Karen and I love to go to the sea. You know, you can sit there all day and watch the same water go in and out all day long. It just goes, it comes in and it goes out. And then it comes in and it goes out. It's all day long, it's the same water. It never makes any progress. And that's what God is saying. The man who doubts, the man who doesn't have real faith, the man who is double-minded, he's like that. He never makes any progress. He never makes any progress. I love how John Bunyan described the double-minded man in, in Pilgrim's Progress. He called him Mr. Facing Both Ways. <laughs> some of you might be able to, unfortunately, some of, some of us might be able to relate to that. Mr. Facing Both Ways. God says, don't come to me doubting. Don't come to me doubting. What does he say? Don't let the double-minded man expect that he'll receive anything from the Lord. You come in faith. That's what God says. You come in faith. You come in faith. 9 through 11 here. You kind of almost wonder, well, why is this in here? This looks like it doesn't fit the context. He's talking about the, the poor brother and the rich brother. So what is, uh, what is God saying to us? When the trial comes, it doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor. God says, be heavenly minded. Think forward. Have the mind of Christ. No doubt poverty can be a great trial. But God says to his, chi to his child, He says, you think forward. You look at your inheritance that I've promised you. No doubt temporal wealth can be a burden. It can be a snare of pride and self-sufficiency. It can anesthetize us to ultimate reality. God says, hey rich man, you better think forward. You better be heavenly minded because you're passing away. You're like the grass. And it's here today and it's gone tomorrow. He says, rich man, you better remember, you're transitory, man. You're a vapor. You're out of here. You're not here to stay. You're here to go. As we've been saying over the last 
few weeks. God says, don't love your money. Don't trust your money. It is fleeting. So God is talking to the rich man and the poor man. God says, whether you're rich or poor, have the mind of Christ. To the rich man, He says, be a good steward of your wealth. Guess what He says to the poor man? Be a good steward of your poverty. Probably never thought about that, have you? Be a good steward of your poverty. Praise God. Even the brother that is of humble means live in a way that God is honored. Let's finish up. Verse 12, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Happy is the man who stays on God during the storm. That's the J-A-V translation. It's the Jim Albright version. I love it. Happy is the man who stays on God in the storm. He stands on the sailor. He stays within that vast granite fortress. He lives by the wisdom of God. When the storm comes, happy is that man. His faith will be shown to be genuine and he will be approved. Happy is that man for he will receive every single last promise of Jehovah Jireh. Every single thing God has promised. What does he say in Luke chapter 12? I gladly give the whole kingdom to my children. Gladly. No reluctant benefactor. Our awesome God. Happy is the man whose lamps have been blown out. You guys remember that, that reference? I shared this with you, I don't know, weeks, a couple of weeks, maybe a couple of months, I don't know, maybe a year ago, I forget. But let me close with this illustration. Happy is the man whose lamps have been blown out. Samuel Rutherford was a 17th century Scottish minister. He was jailed for preaching the gospel. It was said of Rutherford, I like this, he was impatient of earth. Oh, I like that. Are you impatient of earth? Are you ready? Are you ready to live as Christ? What? To die as King. Is that true with you? He was impatient of earth. He was wrapped, wrapped, R-A-P-T, wrapped into continual contemplation of the unseen face. Don't you love that? <laughs> is that how it is with you and Jesus? I love that, man. That's beautiful. But Rutherford writes about his prison. So listen, this is a, a little bit of a lengthy uh, uh, quote, but listen to me. If God had told me some time ago that He was about to make me the, as happy as I could be in this world and then told me He should begin by crippling me in all my limbs and removing me from all my usual sources of enjoyment, I should have thought it a very strange mode of accomplishing His purpose. And yet, how is His wisdom manifest even in this? For if you should see a man shut up in a closed room, idolizing a set of lamps and rejoicing in their light, and you wish to make him really happy, you would begin by blowing out all of those lamps and then throw open the shutters and let him see the light of heaven. Do you understand? Do you understand what he's talking about? You know, all those little temporal things we idolize, those little bitty lamps? Man, they're blinding us. They're blinding us from the true glory of Jesus Christ. We can't see the fullness of His glory because we're idolizing this lamp. 
And I love what Piper, how Piper comments on this quote. He says, Oh, how I pray when God in His mercy begins to blow out my lamps, I will not curse the wind. Let me ask you, Christian friend, have you been cursing the wind? Have you been cursing the wind? Don't curse the wind when your lamps are blown out. God has brought you this trial. He has designed it for you and He is coming to you. He is coming to you in this trial. I dare say in the cancer, Karen, a few of Karen's lamps have been blown out. But she knows Him more now than she did late this time last year. And I don't think she'd trade it. I don't think she'd trade it. Her tears, Friday morning, they weren't about the cancer. They were about her breathtakingly beautiful God. And I'm just going to close with 1 Peter. Verse 3 and following. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again. There's enough reason there alone to rejoice in our trials to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable. Here it is. Think forward. Have your mind set on the things above. An inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled, which will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected uh, by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you ever notice that word there? If necessary, God says it's necessary for you and I to go through the trial. He's going to reveal our own faith to us. And He's going to reveal Himself to us. If necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith being more precious uh, than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. That's what was going on in the bedroom Friday morning with my wife. Obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. James chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. Right there. Oh, beautiful God, (laughs) on our worst day, you're doing a good thing. On our worst day, you are coming to us. Oh, Lord, teach us this truth. Lord, may, may, may we learn what it means to be a peculiar people. Yes, we're going to feel all the, the normal responses that any human uh, feels when the trial comes. But Lord, may our joy rule over our trial. May we be immediately begin to think this is a God encounter. That's what this is. This is not bad luck. This is not some uh, misfortune. This is not just an unfortunate uh, happenstance. You're coming. Lord, teach us to be on the lookout. When the hard thing comes, may we immediately think Here comes God. Here comes God. Great God. Lord, may we learn how to think like this. 
May we learn to think biblically. May we not be like the world and succumb to the flesh and to, to whine and worry, but to walk in the Spirit, looking ahead, having the mind of Christ, knowing that you're on your way and there's eternal reward forever, imperishable reward. Lord God, help us, I pray. We are all weak and, and frail and we struggle in this area. Help us, great God. Teach us how to walk in the Spirit, Holy Spirit. May we learn to count it all joy on our best day and on our worst. For the glory of Jesus, amen.